Hi, everyone. This is Chris Campbell here with another episode of the Food Institute podcast. Today, Dr. Michael Swanson of Wells Fargo joins the show, and we're going to be talking about the state of the U.S. agricultural economy and a whole bunch more. But before we get started, I wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in every week. Please keep on sharing so we can continue to grow, and don't hesitate to reach out to us regarding episode topics, guests, and more. We're really looking forward to talking to you, so reach out, and you can find some links at the bottom of the description to get in touch with us. So with that all said, I'll introduce Dr. Swanson. So how are you today, Dr. Swanson? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Dr. Swanson. And before we really dive into the entire set of factors affecting U.S. agricultural producers today, could you share a little bit about your background and history? Absolutely. Well, I've been in agriculture and food all my life, but working for the last three and a half decades, first position was with the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad hauling grains around the United States. Well, after that, I went down to South America. My wife's Colombian. And so, Mary Colombian, you moved to Colombia. I got a job with Cargill in their grain handling and food division down there. That was very interesting as well. Coffee, fertilizer, seeds, things like that. Uh, came back, worked with Land Lakes, a very well-known dairy cooperative, um, grain um, input supplier here in the Midwest. And when the dairy manufacturing industry for three years. And then last 21 years, I've been Wells Fargo's agricultural economist. And we have one because we've been the largest commercial agricultural lender since 1987 consecutively. So it's a real pleasure to be on the show today. So Dr. Swanson, we're dealing with historic droughts, record high temperatures, you know, supply chain backups, and what's more, even just some price volatility among a lot of products that's really shifting consumer demand for different products. So I'm wondering, can you share, you know, a top level view of what the U.S. farmers going through today? Sounds good. You know, there's two parts to it. There's the tactical you know, right now we have a hot, dry summer developing in many parts of the country, which is going to hurt crop yields very much. You know, so they're, they're dealing with that, but there's not much you can do about that if you don't have irrigation in place already. So they have a lot of tactical issues, you know, price of fertilizer shot up, things like that. And so, but they're used to dealing with tactical. It's interesting though, because their biggest challenge right now, even though they might not acknowledge it, is technological change and regulatory change. They're being asked produce more food more efficiently with less of an environmental footprint than ever before. And like all of us, the technology is in front of us is changing constantly. So how do you adapt to it? How do you choose it? How do you buy it? It's so expensive, so hard to use for some cases. And I think, you know, the food industry in general and agriculture as well is kind of lagged in some of the technological developments that we've seen across the greater retail and manufacturing sectors over the last couple of years. But another area where technology seems to be, you know, impacting farmers is just supply chains in general. And I think it's an understatement to say right now that obviously, you know, supply chains are fragile. So I was wondering if you could give your opinion on how it's affecting U.S. farmers in the current moment. Well, first off, it's hitting them. They have higher transportation costs, which they absorb initially to pass along. But they get that hit first. It hurts them. And they're losing opportunities. I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of people that would like to be sending product to China or Malaysia or other markets and simply can't find a container to put it into. And if they do, it's delayed by three to four weeks, which is really hurting them. So that's the first hit. You know, and we heard so much about going to just-in-time inventory, which is a wonderful concept if everything works like it's supposed to. But we're discovering you better have some just-in-case inventory as well. And getting that just-in-case inventory back into the system after you run it all out, that's a real challenge right now. We're trying to figure out who's gonna pay for that just-in-case inventory. 
So I know a lot of inventory that was saved up by farmers got depleted because of COVID-19 and how supply chains really kind of broke down early on in the pandemic era. And now that we're kind of emerging from it, is that an issue right now? Are, are farmers having a problem with that kind of inventory management? Yeah, that's, a, that's a big part of it. I would also add, people need to understand agriculture is more of what we call a pulse system. You get a crop once a year around almonds or corn and things like that. And so you have to store it for a long period if you want to use it throughout the year. And a lot of people didn't see some of the shortages coming and they let those run down towards the bottom end of our acceptable range. And so there's a real panic in some markets. I'll just say, they say there's only two emotions in the market, fear and greed, you know? And so we switched from people being greedy, wanting to buy it cheap to being fearful, could they get it at all? And that really is a change in mindset that happens very quickly in these markets. So I believe it was the Wall Street Journal reported recently that FedEx had cut a bunch of customer contracts in June. And although they are working to rebuild their capacity, I think it's emblematic of what's happening with the domestic shipping situation in the United States. So I was wondering, do you have any insight into how that is you know, affecting farmers in the U.S. right now? Absolutely. I'm sure everybody's aware of them. We're seeing, you know, we see quotes, you know, getting refrigerated trucks from the West Coast to the Northeast at $9,000 or $10,000, which is extraordinary versus where it was just a couple of years ago. And what are we looking at? We're looking at a driver shortage. Drivers don't like being on the road multiple days. So it's getting tougher to find those types of coast to coast drivers. Um, there's a lot of demand for all trucks right now as we ship more product. And so, yes, we're seeing that diesel's up, drivers are down, and it's just people taking advantage. A lot of times the brokers know people are short and they're not just pricing it at cost, they're also pricing it, hey, here's an opportunity for me to make a big profit as well. So, it's a mess at the moment. So last week we hosted Josh Gellert and Michael Murphy of Comerican International, and Comerican is a major food importer in the U.S., and from their viewpoint, they didn't really expect to see any relief until early 2022 at the earliest. And in doing some research, it seems that they aren't the only ones that kind of see this supply chain issue extending into the new year. So I was wondering if you could give us your educated viewpoint on, you know, basically when this might end. You know, it's interesting. I I stay away from forecasting on time or time events because then you're wrong both on price and when it happened. So it's a tough market, but it's interesting. Let's use an analogy. something we're seeing happen right now. Um, timber and lumber. Lumber prices have shot up through the roof. Everybody knows that pallets are hard to get. People are paying extraordinary prices for lumber right now. But we just saw the top of the market in some ways. We're still trying to discover it's the ultimate top of the market because we're seeing demand destruction. And one of the things we typically have a hard time seeing coming is when people simply say, ah, no, I can wait. And when that happens, suddenly you get a reversal of that fear and greed cycle. And it's really quick how things that go up quick come down quick. So I would, I would say, I don't know when it's going to happen. I do know that demand destruction happens when we're not looking for it. And there might be a lot of people simply say, no, I can wait a year, you can wait a quarter, we'll figure out something. And then once that happens, you see kind of the dominoes tumble in the other direction. So it will be a very interesting market, but you're right. It's a lot of tangled knots. And who's going to cut that Gordian knot? I'm going to put my money on demand destruction. It will definitely be interesting to see how this pans out over the next six months and into 2022 as well. But another topic I really wanted to get your opinion on was just how weather is impacting the U.S. agricultural industry right now. Uh, we're seeing historic heat waves up in the Pacific Northwest. We saw, you know, record drought and record low reservoir levels. And, you know, California's water system is really, really being hit hard this year by that drought. 
And I know some of the rest of the country was as well. Over here on the East Coast, we're actually getting a lot of rain, but you look around the country and it seemed for a very long time it was very, very dry. So how is this affecting U.S. farmers overall? Well, good question. You know, let's start with the West Coast and California. California is the largest commercial production of crops in the United States by far. That's the value of what they produce, you know, high-end wine grapes, almonds, pistachios, fruits and vegetables. And of course, they have that pulse system where I alluded to earlier, where they get the big snowpack and it melts in the reservoirs and they can dole it out throughout the growing season. Well, that works unless you get a, don't get a snowpack. And that was kind of the problem they had this year. Another thing that's changed is that there's an acronym that people in California have come to know and, and dread. It's called SIGMA, stands for Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Surprising to a lot of people, California did not have a water um, law in place about pulling subsurface water up until a few years ago. And they're working their way through that. So we would have seen a previously a big draw of um, subsurface water, but they've, they've noticed a lot of issues. And so they can't go back to that well, quite literally, to solve this drought. And so it's interesting, this is kind of the first drought that they're having without dipping into that re reservoir. And so they're still trying to figure out what water is worth, where they need it, who can pay for it. So California is going through a transition and it's a, it's a big deal. It makes big impacts on the value of the land and production out there. The Midwest is kind of a more hit and miss market. Um, the Northern Plains have been in drought, stay in drought, but we're really concerned about the I states as we call them, Indiana, you know, Iowa, Illinois, that's the home of corn and soybeans. And when they go into drought, that is kind of the light switch that sends these markets for a rocket ride, like in 2012. So far, it's been more on the fringes of the I states, but there's a lot of worry in the market that it could turn on in the I states. And so the market's on edge in a big, big way. And so we've seen lots of volatility and that would translate into a lot of volatility for the consumer. So this water issue really begs a question, you know, regarding California farmers, but also farmers across the country. Are you seeing an increased number of operations following land? You know, especially if they can't get any water for their property, are they doing this? We're seeing a lot of following, and, but it's a kind of a unique way of doing it. Say you have an almond orchard that's producing a good amount of nuts, and suddenly you're afraid you won't be able to get an allocation from the reservoir system. What they're doing is buying someone else's ground that has pumps on it, paying, you know, $30,000, $40,000 an acre, following that ground because it's really not producing anything of value economically right now, and then using the water rights from that acreage to continue to support the existing almond acreage. But what you're really saying is, hey, we're really constraining ourselves in the future and for some of the more um, opportunistic crops that they grow. So yes, we're seeing following, but it's to support the existing acreage of citrus and nuts, which is so high value for them. So just to make sure I'm clear here, you're saying that they're purchasing other farms in order to use those water rights to, you know, irrigate more profitable groves or farms. Is that kind of the gist of it? That's exactly what they're doing. And like, I, just to elaborate a little bit more on it, it used to be when there was sufficient water, people would plant crops like corn and wheat and other things, which they'd sell to the local dairy industry as feed products. Well, that's not going to happen anymore. That water is way too valuable to be growing wheat and corn in California. It's going to be supporting those pistachios that we all love. So I know you don't like looking too much to the future, Dr. Swanson, but, you know, California's water issues are not new. I think that they're getting a lot of press this year because we did have a couple of years there where they were getting enough snowpack and rain that they could subsist. But right now you're starting to see that this problem might last longer than just a year. So what kind of opportunities and challenges does this present for farmers in that region? 
you know, it, I think what we'll see is a plateauing of potential in, in California um, almonds and pistachios and citrus. So I don't think we're going to go backwards per se, but we're not going to see a lot of growth. And if we start plateauing that production, we have to start making choices about how we want to use those almonds. I mean, when almonds are 85 cents to a dollar a pound, you can put them into almond milk easily. You can export them to lower income markets easily. But say we run those almond prices back up to $2.50, $3 a pound. Well, then who stops using them first? You know, we, we would see almond milk be much more expensive. Does that mean people want to drink less of it? Maybe we see lower income countries not import U.S. almonds. Maybe they switch to alternative nuts. Because ultimately, there's some richer countries. The United States is top of the pinnacle there. But there's Japan, Korea, China, and they're tough to price out of the market. India, maybe a little bit more price sensitive. So I think if we see a plateauing of production over the next five, 10 years, we see a reshaping of the demand world where we take those quote unquote economical priced nuts and citrus. Maybe we don't have them anymore. Maybe we just have to stick with our premium markets. So I'd like to switch gears just a tiny bit here and talk about food exports a little bit. And China's really been making a lot of headlines recently for increasing purchases of U.S. corn. And analysts kind of note that this is to help them, you know, basically create feed for their hog herd that's been decimated in recent years by African swine fever. And in talking to you before this call, when we were doing a little prep, you kind of indicated that that might be true, but that it's really just a drop in the bucket for the kind of corn that they produce on their own. So I was hoping you can illuminate a little bit this situation and just, you know, the U.S. corn and soybean exports to that nation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and they, they are completely kind of different crops. The Chinese approach them differently. Let's take corn. Um, last year, we were surprised to see 7 million metric tons go to China. That was a big number. We hadn't seen that much go before. But you got to put every number in context. So as we were talking about, China imported 24 million metric tons last year. This is all from the USDA's estimates. So 24 million. So we've supplied seven. So less than a third. And they produced over 260 million metric tons of corn in China. So they imported less than a tenth of what they produced. And they imported less than a third of that from us. So yeah, we are kind of a drop in the bucket for the Chinese corn market. Now flip that over. Let's talk soybeans. The Chinese produced about 20 million metric tons of soybeans last year while importing 100 million metric tons. And we exported 35 million metric tons to them. So very different markets. The Chinese have been big buyers of soybeans in the past, currently, and always will be. They don't want to take those acres to grow other crops and put them into soybeans. Corn, they approach differently. They see it as a good crop to grow in China for agronomic reasons, for economic reasons. And so they need them both, but they're not going to approach them the same. And so I think it really pays for people to stop and think about that difference between corn and soybeans. And don't, don't treat them the same. You just get yourself in real troubles as a producer and a trader. I agree. They are separate grains, but they're often grown in similar regions and they have a similar growing climate. And one of the regions that these products grow is South America. And I know that they've been increasing production of these grains, soybeans and corn specifically, and that during the Trump era that they were able to take some of the export market away from the U.S. when it was being shipped to China. So I was just wondering, you know, can U.S. producers continue to compete with these producers or is it just going to be an issue where they have a lower price point and U.S. farmers really can't catch up? We can absolutely compete with South American producers, but we have to be aware of the differences between the two markets. 
The U.S. producers are blessed with a very strong infrastructure system between barges and rail. We can move grain cheaply from the interior to the ports. We have well-established ports that are very efficient. And so once we grow the soybeans, we can move them very cheaply to the market. That's a blessing. Also, we have a countervailing thing is we have very expensive land. You know, an acre of ground in Iowa, just a ballpark would be eight to $12,000. You know, you go down to Brazil, ground that can grow a similar crop might be going for a couple thousand dollars. So the Brazilians have a huge advantage. They pay a lot less for their land costs because they have more available land, but they pay a huge penalty in moving it once they grow it. So it's kind of a, a teeter-totter between those two dynamics. Cheap ground in South America, high transportation. United States, high ground prices, cheap transportation. So we're kind of kind of face off against that dynamic over and over again. Now, one of the concerns is that they get good at shipping things and get cheaper at shipping things, they could really have a big advantage if they took away that disadvantage. So there's things that could happen, but we've been watching that for decades and it hasn't happened quickly to say the least. So what about in the current day? I know that some media reports I've seen indicate that it's difficult to even find a barge heading out from the, you know, the, the Great Plains or the Midwest out to one of the ports in the U.S. So in the current moment, do South American producers have something of an advantage when compared to U.S. counterparts? You know, it's, it's a good, good thought. And I'd add a little nuance if I could. For example, bulk versus containerized. The containerized is where we've seen the biggest stress. You know, just you can't get um, backhaul empties to fill and we used to see that be very cheap. So we saw a lot of people put soybeans into containers to take advantage of that dynamic. But that doesn't mean it's the biggest way we move grain. We still move the bulk of our grain in unit trains, you know, 120 plus cars, especially designed to run from North Dakota to the Pacific Northwest, or barges out of Illinois and Iowa down to New Orleans to go on ocean-going freight. That has not been the bottleneck in, in the market. It's been more the containers. So some of the specialty crops, dry beans, uh, other crops like that, yeah, they're really struggling right now. But I have not heard that the barge and their unit trains have been delayed as much as the containers. So I'd say there's a little bit of a wrinkle in, in, in the shipping world, bulk versus containerized. It's kind of night and day right now. So I know that the planting season's already over, so it's not like we're going to be able to give anybody a tip here on whether or not they should have planted corn or soybeans. But with that said, looking to the second half of 2021, which do you think was the better bet for this year? Uh, which product do you think is going to have a higher return? You know, right now it, it, it's corn. Corn is, is kind of the home run crop, as we say here in the Midwest, because if it does well, it does extremely well. And if you strike out, it's pretty miserable. So corn looked really attractive early in the planting season. I think when we get this true up number from the USDA here in July about what they really planted, everybody's kind of expecting a little bit more acres of both, but I think corn's gonna be kind of a, a winner there. And so corn seems to have a little bit of a lead in this horse race, but they're both running pretty strong right now. And so, yeah, let's hope it doesn't get too hot and too dry because producing a good crop solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. And what about your projections of where we're going to be in the second half of 2021 here? You know, what kind of landscape do you think farmers are going to be contending with overall, not just in the corn and soybean markets? Well, you know, weather forecasts change by the minute these days, but we've seen a big pop down in the market. A lot of, a lot of energy came out of the corn and soybean futures on the nearby. As some of these weather models are hinting at a more normalized rainfall and heat conditions, 
And that would say, hey, we get a normal crop at least. And so hopefully that's true. Um, so second half of 2021, if we get normal growing conditions, we will see not cheap corn and soybeans. No way. We're still way too short to see quote unquote cheap corn and soybeans. But $5, $5.50 corn is way better than having to pay $8 for corn to feed chickens and pigs. So everybody makes money at five and five fifty, both the growers and the users. So hopefully those weather forecasts are correct. And I do think that we will see the, the shipping um, snafu really kind of get unkinked. There's money at play. And whenever there's money at play, there's a lot of smart people using a lot of energy and capital to fix things. And so I do see the second half of 2021 being smoother logistically, unless you know the unexpected happened. And that, of course, black swans can fly over your house at any time. So I think it's, it's gonna look good. Hopefully we get that five, 550 corn, the 12 to $14 soybeans. Everybody can make money around those numbers. So I think that'd be a, a good situation. So the market's hinting at that right now with these weather models. Let's hope it comes to fruition. And speaking about potential solutions, what about vertical or indoor farming? Is this something that people will be able to utilize in drought stricken areas or do they kind of run into the same issues that a traditional farm would run into with just a complete lack of water? Absolutely but it will be a very targeted solution. I'll give you a quick story. Went out and visited somebody who started growing 21 crops in their controlled environment situation, and they had gone down to growing three crops because they just found out that you know, those three crops were best for them price-wise, yield-wise. And so I think the market might've been a little bit optimistic about growing certain crops versus where they could be field-grown in other areas. But there is a place, it's, it's a very, complex ecosystem that we have for food. And I think vertical, indoor farming, controlled farming, whatever you want to call it, certainly fits well for certain key crops based on water, based on freshness, based, based on yield and pest situations. But it will certainly be a learning experience with a lot of very, very unhappy people and a few very, very happy winners at the end of the process. And so it's tough to know what who to finance in that environment. That's certainly a big challenge. Dr. Swanson, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today to give us a little education on the U.S. agricultural sector. If any of our listeners want to learn more about you or Wells Fargo, where should they go? The very easiest way is to Google Wells Fargo Agriculture. Top hit will be our webpage with our blogs and all the other information we put out. That's the way the world works these days. Google Wells Fargo Agriculture. It'll be right there. Excellent. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Food Institute podcast. Please remember to follow, like, and share. And as always, really appreciate you listening in. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off.